Welcome to This One Life. Today on the show, Dr. Greg Potter. Greg holds degrees in exercise science and a PhD from the University of Leeds, researching sleep, circadian rhythms, nutrition, and metabolism. Beyond academia, Greg is the host of Reason and Wellbeing podcast, has co-founded multiple startups, and has dedicated over a decade to coaching organizations and individuals in optimizing wellness and performance across various contexts. We will discuss the five fascinating ways how your biological rhythms affect crucial parts of your body, from the brain to muscles to your cardiovascular system, and what that means for when you should sleep, eat, exercise, take cold baths, as well as the incredible impact your biological rhythm has on your physical performance. This is part one of the conversation with Greg, and we will follow with a deep dive on sleep and three powerful ways to finally get good sleep health. Enjoy. Greg, great to have you on the show. Great to be here. I'm excited to speak today. You have coached with a range of high performers, from sprinters to ultra-endurance athletes. Tell us about some of your most remarkable experiences. Sure. The people I worked with were university-level sprinters. A couple of them competed in the nationals. One of them went to the European Championships. He has a few mental health conditions. And so he competes in a category that's specific to his ability. And he was very successful at those championships. He actually went on to win four gold medals in a range of events spanning from 100 meters to the four by four. And then I've since worked with a range of different people. When I was at Loughborough, I coached some other types of athletes too, including team sports athletes, working with them in particular on strength conditioning. But in the period spanning the start of my undergrad to now, I've also worked with people who have multiple chronic health conditions, especially people who have sleep issues and problems related to those. And then in 2019, a friend of mine, Ali McDonald, met a guy named Max Thorpe at an event about resilience. And Max had been competing in an event called the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge, which is rowing across the Atlantic Ocean, as you do. And he competed in it your, in your 2017. Your everyday uh, Sunday activity. Yeah, no big deal. He competed in it in 2017 with his friend. And after about 10 days, the boat capsized and caught fire when it got hit by a rogue wave, which is an un unusually large wave. And True to the name Resilient, Max returned later in a crew named Resilient X with another friend named Dave Spellman. And Ali, my friend, had heard the backstory of Max and decided to support them and sponsored their efforts at the 2019 event and then brought me in to help out with their sleep, their biological rhythms and their nutrition. And long story short, they were very successful. They broke the world record they crossed the Atlantic in less than 38 days. And that was the start of some of the work that I've since done with ultra endurance athletes. And probably the most notable of those athletes otherwise is Pip Hare. She single-handedly sailed around the planet 
in the 2020-2021 Vendée Globe, and she was the first British skipper across the line, which has earned her quite a lot of adulation. She was actually on the front page of the Times newspaper, which is one of the biggest newspapers in the UK. And she's an extraordinary person. She did that in her late 40s. And I believe that she's due to compete in the next Bond League Globe event too. So I've been very privileged to work with some extraordinary people. And all of that sounds like I must be doing a good job. But actually, I think it's much more a reflection on the people that I have been working with and their extraordinary talent. When you think back at your experiences, and likely a lot of people have asked you about them and in your private life in other in other areas, and they have certain assumptions how it must be working with these type of performers or how they generally are. What are some of the unintuitive things about people like them or something that typically if you get wrong, assuming that they are in a certain way, they beha behave in a certain way, stuff like that. I think a lot of people assume that they must be doing a lot of the fundamentals very well. And to reach such high levels of performance, what they are bringing people in to help with must relate to micromanagement optimizing their supplementation, the specifics of their training protocols, their recovery modalities. That's not the case in my experience at all. And maybe in part because of the types of athletes that they are, these aren't people who are competing in very well-funded team sports, for example. They're not professional football players who are earning millions and millions of pounds or euros or dollars. And instead they're competing in sports that lack good funding and often actually rely on the help of others, including loved ones, to fund their efforts. And I think people will be surprised by just how poor the sleep and the nutrition of these people can be when starting out. And actually what you're trying to get them to do a lot of the time is the basics really well. I don't think their characteristics would otherwise surprise people too much. I had to smile because a couple of weeks ago, there was Dr. Andy Galpin on the show who had also coached a range of different types of athletes. Amongst them, also some of the some professional athletes, which you would consider earning millions and millions of dollars. And I ran into that wrong assumption saying, hey, Andy, does it frustrate you to work with normal people because you have to go back to the basics and it's all that stuff. Whereas, whereas if you work with professional athletes, you get all that covered and you can really focus on the small nits and pieces to get the last optimum percentage in there. And he said, you are so absolutely wrong. It's the same thing with those people. Hey, stop drinking booze, stop drinking, eating fast food, stop staying awake until 3 a.m. in the morning. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And that's not to say that they aren't different in some ways. I think often they're so talented that they will be successful almost regardless of the methods that they take. And that's why it can be misguided to assume that somebody who's working with such athletes must be an extraordinarily good practitioner. And therefore they're in high demand. I think often they're working with extraordinary people. And so they might take some of the 
praise for the success of those individuals, but actually these people would have been successful regardless. So those types of athletes are somewhat different, but they are in many ways similar to the rest of us. And just to pick up on something that you said, I think often people focus on the specifics of the protocols that people should be using. And actually, if we think about the fact that many of these people aren't doing the fundamentals very well, what we need to think about is how can we deliver information about the basics of lifestyle these people should be doing in a way that resonates with those individuals, in a way that lets them actually make these changes in their own lives. And I think about this quite a lot in some of the work that I do with startups because so many of them focus on tailoring the interventions. What's the best exercise? What's the best sleep tip? And actually you can give people what is best in their circumstance and tell them this is what you should do, but so often they can't actually go ahead and implement those changes. And instead we need to think more about how do we deliver that information to actually make it easier to action in the context of someone's individual life. Yeah, if information would be, if information would be the problem, we would have all cured it, and, and even this personalized information to your to your specific situation, because for most of the people know what they're doing wrong. It, it, it's really more how, how can you get someone to start implementing some of the very basic things, and to the point of personalization also. Because my background in freeletics, personalization has two benefits. The one is it's actually personalized to you. So if you're doing it, you get a somewhat better results. How much? It depends on what you would have done without that personalization. But the other thing is that for some of the people, it's motivating. That's what's required to get them going. But that's very far away from being sufficient for all people out there to start going. So I think you're absolutely right. And the question is really more how can we get people to understand the basic fundamentals and also start implementing some of them versus over-optimizing on supplements or very extreme diets, for example? Very well said. And hopefully we can share some of those fundamentals today in a way that people actually understand and can make use of. That's a good segue to start with one of our focus topics today, biological rhythms. You talk about clocks in all bodily tissues created throughout evolution. Help us understand that concept. Absolutely. And I'll begin by saying, if you look across many different types of organisms, they almost all, or perhaps all, have their own biological clocks and Clocks obviously aren't literally timekeeping pieces within their cells and are instead what are called molecular clocks. We don't need to get into the details of those, but these lead to time of day changes in their biology. And the purpose of those time of day changes is fundamentally to anticipate changes in the environment, such as the rising of the sun each day and the setting of the sun, and also adapt to changes in the environment. And that's particularly relevant in the context of species that are quite photoperiodic, their biology changes quite a lot as the seasons change. And the main signal in terms of those seasonal transitions is the duration that the sun is up each day. So clearly the fact that so many different types of organisms have these clocks means that they go way back 
and actually we've identified clocks that probably go back as far as two to two and a half billion years. There are single-celled bacteria that have their own clocks and these bacteria, they're called cyanobacteria, they're thought to have first oxygenated the Earth's atmosphere and that then gave rise to aerobic metabolism which supported the evolution of much more complex organisms such as ourselves. And the relevance of this is that because we can anticipate changes in the environment each day, we are better able to do things like find food because when we're active is going to coincide with when other organisms that are active that might be below us in the food chain and that means that we can actually get food that's going to let us survive and then subsequently pass on our genes. We also need many different types of rhythms in our body because fundamentally as we're awake and we're being physically active, we're finding food, we're seeking mates, all of that imposes quite a lot of stress on our body. So we need a period each day in which we are resting and we are reversing some of the damage that's taken place during prior wakefulness. Because when you think about sleep, which is what I'm referring to here, in many ways it's counterintuitive that it would have evolved because when you're asleep, you can't get food, you can't have sex, and so you're unable to pass on your genes. So unless it was fulfilling some very important functions, it shouldn't ever have evolved. And I think a helpful way to think about sleep and wakefulness is that it's a little bit like an F1 race. And in this race, being awake is taking part in the race itself. It's while you're speeding around the track. And then sleep is a bit like the pit stop. And the nature of the pit stop has changed over time from the early F1 races up to the present day as the cars have become more sophisticated. In the same way, the functions that sleep fulfills have probably evolved over time too, so that it does more within that period of time that we are asleep each day. But it gives us an opportunity to repair the tires, to refill the tank, and all of that is to optimize our bodies for wakefulness so that then when we are awake, we're better able to go out and pass on our genes. And that brings me just to the final thing that I'll mention here, which is that fundamentally, the clocks that we have and these rhythmic changes in our biology that they produce have evolved because they actually help us pass on our genes. They're a so-called Darwinian fitness characteristic. And there are various types of experiments that have shown that. But two of the interesting examples of these include one that uses the same type of bacteria that I mentioned earlier. These have their own clocks that tick at roughly 24 hours each day. And what you can do is you can take these bacteria and you can find slightly different bacteria that have different length clocks. So some of them have quite fast clocks, some of them have quite slow clocks. And then you can take these bacteria with different length clocks and you can put them under different light-dark cycles. And what you find is that when the light-dark cycle roughly matches the length of the bacteria's clock, so let's say it's a 12 hours of light and 12 hours of darkness, and the bacteria has a clock that ticks at 24 hours, that means that this clock is very well suited to that light-dark cycle. The bacteria that have the accurate clocks that match the light-dark cycle massively outcompete the other bacteria in the dish that have faster or slower clocks. 
so that after a few days, almost all of the dish is occupied by these bacteria. But more relevant to us, there are experiments done where people have taken mice that have different length clocks. So some of them have quite fast clocks, some of them quite slow clocks, and they're then put under different light-dark cycles. And again, we see that mice that have clocks that closely match the light-dark cycle are more reproductively successful. Assuming that we say, okay, humans need sleep, let's put that out there as a fixed assumption. Do you have any guess why from an evolutionary perspective, it would be better for us humans to follow such a clock to follow the light versus having created a way to actively decide in our brains when we are, for example, tired and want to rest when we are most, when we are most active, when we are, when we have the best circumstances to go out and hunt. It feels that if I could tell my brain now to shut down for four hours, because for some reason I know that for the next four hours, I'm going to be good, fine. My tribe is going to take care of me, despite it being sun light outside and during the middle of the day, I could sleep now for four hours and then use that time at some other point. If we think about the fact that our very distant ancestors evolved clocks, and then since then various different, more complex organisms have evolved from those species. If the early ones had their own clocks, then others subsequently are going to have clocks too, if they are in some way helpful. And so if the early ones have clocks and some of their progeny in generations to come continue to have clocks, then you're going to see the emergence of many different types of organisms, all of which have these timekeeping mechanisms that are making them most active at certain times of day. And in that type of structure, the organisms are going to learn to anticipate this is when food is most likely to be available. This is when I'm most likely to get popped out of the gene pool because I have predators and not being at the top of the food chain, that means that I really need to avoid that time of day because I'm going to get eaten alive. So I don't know if that answers your question adequately, but I think a lot of this is driven by the fact that we need food and we need to avoid being eaten by other animals. Is it possible for humans to turn from night owl to early riser? Yeah, I think it is to a degree. And you'll hear some people say there's no such thing as a night owl or a morning lark. And this brings up the subject of chronotype. Chronotype is differences between people in when they're most inclined to be active and when they're most inclined to rest. You will have heard people refer to early birds and late types. There are lots of different words that are used, but I think fundamentally we intuitively understand what we're referring to here. And when you look across the whole population, there are dramatic differences in the earliest birds and the latest night owls within people of the same biological sex and the same biological age. And I mention that because the timing of our body's clock does shift over the life. It basically is such that when we're born, don't have very well organized clocks. And Daniel, you're a parent of a young child. You're familiar with how when they're first born and they enter the world, their sleep is all over the place. 
they don't have very clear patterns of waking and sleeping. But then over the course of the weeks, their patterns start to consolidate into clear cycles each day. And in childhood, we're very early. We then progressively delay up until the end of adolescence. And some people have actually put forward the latest timing of the sleep-wake cycle as a marker of physical maturation. It tends to be around 19 for girls and around 21 for boys. And then from that point onwards to the end of life, people get earlier and earlier. So I mentioned that just because when we're referring to chronotype, we need to bear in mind how old someone is and whether they are a boy or a girl too. But going back to your question, while there is this dispersion, if you put people under standardized conditions, let's say that everyone goes camping and we're all outdoors in daylight during the day, we have darkness at night because we don't have any access to electric lighting. We only have access to firelight and starlight and moonlight. Within just a few days, the difference between the earliest and the latest will be substantially smaller, but there will still be a difference. And we know that there are people who genetically are very early or very late respectively. And we've identified some of the genes that can contribute to this variation too. However, some people will say, I'm a night owl, and they will almost use that as an excuse to not get earlier, even if they need to be earlier so that they can wake up on time for work, so that they can extend their sleep opportunity because they have to wake to an alarm in the morning. And so people are interested in whether we can use interventions that are doable, scalable, to help shift the timing of people's bodies' clocks. And there have been some nice studies demonstrating that this is the case. There's one in particular that was published a few years ago by Elise Facer-Childs and Deborah Skeen, where they took young adults who typically have quite late sleep-wake timing, and they put them through just a three-week intervention that included timed sleep-wake schedules. And obviously, when you're asleep and in bed and when you're awake and up moving around, gates the timing of your light exposure. So if you just enforce changes to somebody's sleep schedule, you're going to change their light exposure too. And we know that light exposure is the most important time cue for the master clock in the brain that is very important the timing of the sleep-wake cycle. So in conjunction with a sleep schedule that was shifted earlier than it was, before the intervention. These people were trying to go to bed and wake up about two to three hours earlier than previously. That plus increased morning light exposure, so they were encouraged to get outside into daylight before midday, plus some changes to their nutrition. Specifically, they were told to have breakfast as early as possible after waking, to have their dinner finished by no later than 7 p.m and some changes to their caffeine intake. They were told to not have any caffeine any later than 3 p.m. And then finally some changes to their exercise timing. And they were encouraged to exercise in the morning if they were exercisers. After just three weeks, these people had shifted their sleep-wake cycles and the timing of their body's clock. And there are some specific markers that we can use that are proxies of the timing of their clocks by about two hours or so. So in these people who have very late sleep-wake timing within three weeks, we can shift them quite a lot earlier 
using some quite simple interventions that people seem to be able to stick to. Let's I'll add that they were, sorry, Daniel, I'll, I'll add that those changes were also associated with some improvements. So these people had better cognition, better brain function during the daytime. And also the difference between when they were weakest and when they were strongest each day was much smaller after the intervention because what you typically find is that you're at your physical peak in many capacities, in particular strength and power exercise in the late biological afternoon, which would be around 6 p.m. for most people. And for night owls, when they first wake up in the morning, their physical performance can be much lower than it is at their peak. But after this intervention, the difference between their morning performance and their evening performance is much, much smaller. Is it just a shifting of when you have your peak physical performance between when you switch from night owl to early riser, or is it actually somewhere also the absolute level of peak performance that changes? It is a shift primarily in the amplitude of the performance variation. And so what I mean by that is if you look, for example, at grip strength, this is often used in research settings because it's easy to administer, it's repeatable. The difference between when you're at your weakest, which would typically be shortly before you would naturally wake up in the morning, and when you're at your strongest, which is, as I mentioned, typically in the late biological afternoon or early evening, it's when your core body temperature is highest, is something like 10% for most people. It's quite a big difference. For early birds, the size of that change tends to be a bit smaller, but for night owls, it can be really quite large. And what after they've gone through this type of intervention is that the discrepancy between their worst performance and their best performance is a little bit smaller. It's not that the peak is getting lower, it's that the lowest performance is going up a bit. But in general, what we actually want when we think about these biological rhythms is to have high amplitude rhythms. And what I mean by that, to give a couple of examples, is that we want lots of physical activity during the daytime and then minimal activity at night, which looks like consolidated sleep. It means that we want sharp cycles of well-timed food intake and then a sufficient fasting period each day. And the food intake is occurring at a regular time of day. We want a very big difference between the amount of light that we get during the daytime when the sun is up and the light that we're exposed to when the sun is down. All of that helps keep our clocks in time with each other and the world around us, and in turn supports our long-term resilience and performance in many capacities. Next to sleep, what are the most important systems affected by our bodily rhythm? Can you give us an overview and then dive a little bit into the details, how it's being affected and what happens biologically? Absolutely. It might not be a surprise that all systems of our bodies have their own rhythmic changes in the processes that they go through each day. Because fundamentally, the cells in the tissues in all of these systems have a common internal clockwork. And I'll come to that later, but just to start with some examples, I mentioned earlier that the master clock in the brain that's most set by our patterns of light exposure is a strong determinant of when we sleep and when we're awake each day. 
but it also influences many other functions in the brain and elsewhere in the body. So to focus on the brain, as one example of this, there are clear time of day changes in different cognitive functions, like your ability to pay attention at work. And for most people, attention peaks in the biological morning. If you take the example of somebody with relatively typical sleep-wake timing, let's say that they go to bed at 10.30 p.m. and they're up in the morning at 6.30 a.m. For somebody like that, their attention might well peak in the morning at roughly 10 a.m., a few hours after waking. There will then be a dip in the middle of the day, which colloquially a lot of us will call the post-lunch slump. And historically, a lot of people have said that's because you had too much at lunch and you've got poor blood sugar control and that's contributing to the fact that you feel sleepy after lunch or whatever. Actually, the main reason for that relates to the fact that the body's clock produces a temporary dip in the drive to be awake at that time of day. And this is thought to have helped people avoid the sun's damaging rays at the hottest time of day. And it's no coincidence that we see siesta cultures in many quite warm climates, such as in parts of the Mediterranean. There are also some groups of people worldwide where you see different sleep-wake patterns at different times of year, such that people will have a nap at the hottest time of year, but not at other times of year. And then there tends to be another peak in some aspect of cognitive performance in the afternoon. So there are two peaks on either side of this lunchtime dip, and the first peak tends to be higher for most people, but for some people, and for night owls especially, it's often the case that the second peak is actually higher, and this has implications for when you are best set to do certain types of work. If you're doing something that was very difficult, you were coding, you're trying to learn a language, you're working on spreadsheets or presentation, it would be best to try and coincide that type of complex work with one of these peaks in performance. There are also time of day changes in your mood each day. And there's a guy in Harvard named Frank Shear, who's a brilliant chronobiologist, and he recently published some work with Sarah Chalapa showing that the body's clock produces time of day changes and things like feelings of anxiety each day. And in general, people tend to feel worse between about 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. in the morning, depending on the specific outcome that you're most interested in, whether that's mental fatigue, whether that's how physically comfortable you are, or whether that's feelings of anxiety or depression. Moving on from the brain to some other systems, if we think about the musculoskeletal system, I spoke earlier about how in many ways, our bodies are primed for activity during the daytime and our musculoskeletal function tends to follow core body temperature. Happily for most of us, that means that we're at our physical peaks around the end of the working day. And so if it works for your lifestyle, a post-work gym session is probably a really good idea for you. But given that your clocks in your skeletal muscles and other tissues that are relevant to your exercise performance anticipate when you're active each day, they will somewhat adapt to when you are most active. So if you can only work out before work, for example, in the morning, even if initially you're not used to that, when you've done that enough times, the clocks in your muscles are expecting you to be active at that time of day. And so that's going to help support your performance. And I'll just say that 
if you can only train in the morning before work, it's particularly important for you to spend a little bit longer warming up to try and get your core body temperature higher. That's going to reduce the difference between your performance at that time of day and your performance at the optimal time of day, which is in the late biological afternoon. Relevant to exercise performance is your cardiovascular system. And there are all sorts of time of day changes in its function. And we see this in particular in disease risk. So interestingly, for example, it's clear that heart attacks tend to cluster in the morning. If you look across the 24 hour day, most of them occur early in the morning. The cardiovascular system is most vulnerable at that time of day. And that's one of the reasons why I tend to recommend doing very strenuous exercise in the afternoon if possible. And this is also one of the reasons why I think it's very much misguided that I often hear people talk about using cold water immersion shortly after waking in the morning to wake themselves up for the day ahead. Because the issue with cold water immersion, specifically if the face is immersed as well as the rest of the body. So for example, if you go swimming in the sea in the UK, is that your body undergoes something called autonomic conflict, where there is activation of the sympathetic, the fight or flight branch of the nervous system at the same time as the parasympathetic branch, the rest and digest branch of the nervous system within the heart. And that type of autonomic conflict seems to increase risk of acute events such as arrhythmias. And even in otherwise healthy people, an alarmingly large proportion of people will experience arrhythmias if they undergo cold water immersion and they're more likely to have this type of experience if it's shortly after waking in the morning. So again, I think anything that's stressful on your heart is probably best placed around the middle of your waking day, maybe in the afternoon, if you decide to include that type of activity. Because I'm not saying that it doesn't have some benefits, but in part because of changes in the balance of your nervous system, in part because of changes in things like the function of your blood vessels and your blood pressure, your cardiovascular system is most vulnerable in the morning. And that also has implications for when it's best to take certain medications. I'm trying to give demonstrations of the relevance of this to real life because one clear example of this is that your body's clock influences the best time of day at which to take medications, for example, too. If your heart is most vulnerable in the morning, then maybe it's best to take some cardiovascular medications in the evening in order to support its function the following morning. We see this with blood pressure lowering medication specifically. There are some people who are so-called non-dippers, meaning that their blood pressure doesn't dip overnight as it should do. And that is associated with increased risk of various different cardiovascular events. And for those people, if they take their blood pressure lowering drugs like ACE inhibitors in the evening around the time they go to bed, they get much better responses to those medications. And I'll just mention a couple more of examples of these different bodily systems. If you look at your digestive system and the different tissues that are involved in metabolizing the foods and drinks that you consume, then in general, they're primed for intake during the daytime, in particular, the first half of the waking day. There are, for example, clocks that influence the uptake of various different nutrients in the gut. The microbiota that collection of microorganisms in your gastrointestinal tract 
fluctuates over the course of the 24-hour day and that influences things like the integrity of the barrier of your gut and therefore the likelihood that things get through the gut lining that shouldn't get through it. And then once the nutrients are in your blood, obviously they get shuttled to various different parts of your body. And if we look at glucose from carbohydrates in the foods that you consume, then how much your glucose in your blood sugar swings in response to meals varies a lot over the 24 hour day, such that you have much better blood sugar control in the biological morning around 8 a.m. for a lot of people than you do in the biological evening at around 8 p.m. And that's in part because you have clocks in your pancreas that influence when the pancreas is best able to produce insulin. You have clocks in your fat cells that influence the uptake of the glucose from the bloodstream. You have clocks in your skeletal muscles that do the same in skeletal muscle. And all of that adds up such that if you are consuming a substantial amount of carbohydrate in your diet, it's generally a good idea for most people to front load their intake within the course of the waking day and have quite a lot of it at the first meal or two and then relatively little at dinner. Obviously exercise factors in here as does physical activity in general, but that is something to consider. And then the final thing that I'll mention is the immune system. When you're active and you're eating, you're increasing your exposure to various different pathogens from food and from elsewhere too. And your immune system anticipates this through its clocks. If your immune system was always on high alert, then that would be damaging because ultimately it could start attacking things that you don't want it to attack, such as your own bodily tissues. And this is what happens in autoimmune diseases. It's also very energetically expensive to have an immune system that's always on high alert. And so one of the core functions of your body's clock is to try and save energy and make sure that things are only on when they have to be. And the immune system is a clear example of this. But the relevance of all of this to your daily life, to provide a couple of examples, are that if you are getting a vaccination, there might well be a best time of day at which to get that vaccination. This has been shown for the BCG vaccine. It's also been shown for some of the influenza, influenza vaccines too. And in both of these instances, people respond better to vaccination in the morning than they do in the afternoon. And when I say better, I'm referring to the fact that their bodies produce more antibodies in response to vaccination when they get the vaccination in the morning. So I'll pause there because I realized there was quite a lot in there, but hopefully I've given some examples of how this influences the function of different bodily systems and how that actually relates to your daily life and to your health. You have given some incredible examples. While you were explaining those, I asked myself, so for example, with the cardiovascular system and the example you gave around cold water um, immersion, there just recently has been a lot of talk about the benefits of cold water immersion and people almost got very, let, let's say, excited about this. Uh, also, other things like the impact on when you should take medication, when your immune system is in fight or flight, higher or, or lower activation. 
when you have peak performance, when you're more able to concentrate, when your mood swings? This is a very broad question, especially because we're talking about so many different categories here. And even within the categories, there's a lot of nuance likely. But if there is a way to simplify, how accepted is what you have just explained to us within research, within academia? And how can we think about the, the, the size of the impact? let's say in two extreme cases going with the optimal case where you are exactly on point with uh, your bo bodily clock and then the other one where you're almost the, the opposite. Because I have never heard anyone talk about the timing of cold water immersion in that way that you have just done that. And I've followed a lot of the discussions around that. I have never actively heard about timing of medication, although this could implicitly be baked into the guidance when you take certain medications. So there I might be completely wrong, but just generally society in itself is forcing most of the people to adhere to a certain preset timing, which might not be the one that works well with your bodily clock. To summarize this big question, how accepted is it? How big is the impact? Uh, do we have to be more conscious about the clock of individual people? Those are three very broad questions, but I'll do my best to touch on each of them. <laughs> so first, regarding the latter, yes, absolutely. We need to try and tailor different interventions according to the needs of individuals. Fortunately, I think it's actually quite straightforward to do that once you understand how the clock works. And once you have some proxies of the timing of people's individual clocks. When I say proxies, there are markers of the timing of your clock that you can look at. The ones that are widely used in clinical research, studies that are done on human beings, are core body temperature, has a relatively high amplitude rhythm, fluctuates by about 0.8 degrees Celsius each day. Depends on whether somebody sleeps or not. If somebody doesn't sleep, the size of the fluctuation is smaller because sleep itself will lower core body temperature. And the other one is the timing of the melatonin rhythm. Melatonin is a hormone that's produced by the pineal gland in the brain that relays information about the light-dark cycle to tissues elsewhere in the body because melatonin is only synthesized in large quantities during the biological nighttime when there is little light that is hitting the eyes. And so in that way, melatonin acts as a kind of internal signal of darkness, telling cells and tissues throughout your body that it's dark outside and therefore to engage in activities that are appropriate for that time of day. And people think of melatonin as being a sleep hormone because you can take it as a supplement to help with sleep in certain conditions, but it's not really. It's more of an internal signal of darkness. And interestingly, if you look at nocturnal animals like certain mice, then melatonin for them signals the daytime and therefore is in some ways stimulating activity and food intake. But to move on to the primary two components of your question, how accepted are these things that I'm discussing. If we're thinking about acceptance in terms of the strength of the research behind them, 
obviously it depends on the specific question that you're looking at, but these things that I'm discussing have actually been relatively well demonstrated. There's quite a lot of research backing up many of the things that I'm talking about. And you're speaking to somebody who's allergic to pseudoscience and woo. And maybe sometimes I will overstate things and there are lots of nuances to all of this stuff, of course. And I need to therefore try and simplify things and will at times be simplistic. But in general, there's a lot of rigorous science backing up many of the things that we're discussing today. But just because it's well accepted doesn't mean that it's widely implemented. And at the moment, there is a large gap between those two things. Just as an example of this, if you look at studies of new drugs and existing drugs, there was an analysis done in 2016 that reported that 0.16% of ongoing or registered clinical trials had actually looked at whether time of day of administration of the drug in question influences outcomes. So one in every thousand. So within the study of drugs, pretty much. So within the study of medications, a vanishingly small proportion of pharmacological studies is actually considering time of day as an important variable. On the subject of time of day of drug intake, I think it's important to spell out that a lot of the studies that have looked at drug timing haven't actually looked at timing of the biological clock at the same time. So they haven't used very rigorous methods to identify when the drug is being administered relative to somebody's circadian phase, the timing of their internal day. But clearly the size of the effects in some instances is actually quite substantial. And we might circle back to that later because the fact that tissues such as the liver are influencing things like the absorption of drugs, the distribution, the metabolism and the excretion can really strongly affect responses to many different types of drugs. And actually there have been instances of medications that have been developed. And the first one that comes to mind is called oxaloplatin, which is used for some cancers where the medications initially failed the clinical trial process because they were too toxic. And then subsequently, smart scientists who understand the body's clock intervened and said, we need to look at the timing of this medication. And then later clinical trials found that if they could optimally time the when these people were taking the medication, they could dramatically reduce side effects. And therefore, the drug passed clinical trials and is now used to this date. How big is the effect of some of these different interventions? Obviously, it depends on what we're looking at. In some instances, we're talking about modest effects. In some instances, we're actually speaking about really quite big differences. And in the case of something like physical performance, we're speaking about quite big differences. Given the magnitude of negative consequences that being out of sync with your internal clock has, how does our modern life interfere with our internal clocks? Given the drastic changes in our environment from our ancestral pasts, do you believe, to what extent do humans now, from a circadian perspective, not live anymore in a world that they were biologically designed for? Quite a substantial extent. And I think 
there are now many forms of disruption to our clocks. And at this point, I'll just pause and pan back and just try and clearly explain what the different time cues for these clocks are. I mentioned that the light-dark cycle is particularly important setting the timing of the master clock in the brain. And there are a few different light parameters that matter. One is the intensity of light. And the visual system isn't actually always that good at picking up on this. And what I mean by that is in this room right now, the intensity of light is probably something like 300 lux. Lux is just the unit of intensity. One lux is roughly the intensity of a candle held one meter from the eye. If I go outdoors now at 2 p.m., even in, in England on a slightly overcast day, the intensity of light outdoors might be 50,000 lux. So we're talking about over 100 times brighter outdoors than it is inside. And my biological clock does actually register this, which is why it's so important to spend plenty of time outdoors in daylight. Daylight has many other effects on our biology too that I won't go into, but it influences things like hormones, blood pressure, metabolism, and immune function. Another parameter of light that matters is the composition of the light in terms of its different wavelengths, so-called spectral composition. A lot of people have heard that blue light is particularly able to affect the body's clock, and that is true. The cells in our eyes that respond to light and relay this information back to the master clock in the brain are most sensitive to light of a wavelength of roughly 480 nanometers, which corresponds to blue light. And so what that means is that if you want to affect these cells and therefore the clock in your brain, then you want light that has plenty of short wavelength light in it, which might look blue, it might look white, it doesn't necessarily have to look blue and that's important to understand. But generally speaking, the light is gonna look quite cold as opposed to the kind of warm amber lighting that you might've seen, for instance, in a romantic restaurant. And then the other parameter of light that matters is the timing of light. And this brings us to the subject of entrainment, synchronizing the clock with the world around you. And you might've heard of what's called a dose response curve where how much you respond to a particular medication or stimulus depends on the size of the dose that you take. If I take 50 milligrams of caffeine, I'm gonna experience some small, possibly imperceptible boost in my alertness. If I take 500 milligrams of caffeine, which is the equivalent of buying roughly eight shots of espresso, then I'm gonna notice that and I'm, I'm gonna feel jittery because there is a dose response relationship. In the case of light, there's something called a phase response curve, which is in some ways similar, but the difference is that it's not just the size of the dose that matters. When the dose occurs, relative to the timing of your body's clock is what matters too. And so you can plot what's called a phase response curve, which basically graphically shows how your body's clock shifts according to when you are exposed to a stimulus. And if you do this for light, then what is that in the biological morning, which is between roughly two hours before you naturally wake up and roughly two hours after, your body's clock will be substantially accelerated or shifted earlier by exposure to intense short wavelength light, such as what you get outdoors on a sunny day. So if you want to shift your clock earlier because you're a night owl, it's really important to get lots of daylight around the time that you wake up in the morning. And if you are a parent to teens, then 
that means you should open the curtains in the bedroom of your child in the morning and try and get them outside into daylight as early as possible. But then at the end of the day, the corollary of this is that exposing yourself to lots of that type of light between a couple of hours before you would naturally fall asleep and a couple of hours after is going to slow down your clock a lot. It's going to push it later. And so for the teen, that's precisely the opposite of what they want because that means they're going to be going to bed and falling asleep even later than normal. And because they have to wake to an alarm at 6 a.m. to get up for school, they're going to have a smaller sleep opportunity and that's going to impair their health and their function. But whereas light is the most important time cue for the master clock, patterns of food intake seem to be very important to setting the time of some of the peripheral clocks elsewhere in the body in particular in organs that are relevant to digestion and metabolism, such as clocks in the gut and the liver. And then exercise timing seems to be able to shift the timing of the clocks in various different exercise relevant tissues like skeletal muscle, but also somewhat shift the timing of the clock in the brain too, which is why if you want to maximize how much you shift your clock in your brain, and you're using time light exposure for that, if you can be physically active at the same time, you're gonna create an even bigger difference in the size of the shift in the timing of your clock that you get in response to that. So hopefully that makes it clear that these different clocks in different parts of our body are set by different stimuli, but fundamentally light exposure, nutrition, and physical activity are really important. So now to move into your actual question, Daniel, I'm sorry for the ludicrously long intro. There are many forms of disruption that we experience that are evolutionarily novel. And some of these are mild and some of these are severe. So if we start with severe, if you ever experienced jet lag, then you know what disruption to many of your different bodily clocks or maybe all of your bodily clocks feels like. And it's miserable. You probably have insomnia symptoms when you try and sleep during the day, you're probably sleepy and fatigued. During the first couple of days, you probably have some gastrointestinal distress. You're struggling to digest food. You're feeling bloated. Maybe you're constipated. But then because your clocks are able to adapt to change in your environment, you are soon able to synchronize the new environment, particularly if you can optimize the timing of your light exposure activity and your nutrition. Another less immediately obvious but much more burdensome example of clock disruption is of course shift work and in the case of shift work there are lots of different forms of shifts and for some people shifts are really taxing for others they're not so taxing and it's not just clock disruption that's taking place but instead there are some substantial differences between shift workers and non-shift workers related to things like how much money they earn the stress that comes with working shifts while trying to maintain close relationships with loved ones and so on. But we know that shift workers are at increased risk of various different chronic diseases. They've probably got something like a 25% higher risk of type 2 diabetes, a higher risk of some cardiovascular events. They seem to be more likely to get asthma than the rest of us too. They're more prone to some mood issues. They're substantially more prone to accidents in part because they're more sleepy when they are awake. And clearly, while this isn't just clock disruption, the type of clock disruption that they're experiencing is probably eroding their health. But just to provide a couple more examples, I think one of the more egregious 
and frustrating is that of daylight savings time. Daylight savings time during the spring transition each year, the clocks spring forward and we lose an hour of sleep in many countries throughout the world. And while a lot of people love that because it means they feel like they have more time in daylight each day, many of us lose a substantial amount of sleep. And when that transition takes place, there is, albeit a small, a statistically significant increase in cardiovascular events such as heart attacks. That's been shown time and time again. People will be less productive at work. They're more likely to engage in so-called cyber loafing, which is basically just sitting in front of your computer screen, looking like you're working, but not really working. Maybe you're scrolling social media. Maybe you're only working when your boss is actually watching. Maybe you're choosing easier activities like answering emails rather than doing deeper work that's actually contributing something of real value. And there are fluctuations in the stock market. Judges will dole out harsher penalties during this transition. There are all sorts of changes that take place. And that brings up the subject of time zones indirectly, because if you look at people's sleep timing, even within a time zone, like say within the UK, differences in people's sleep timing according to whether they are in the east or the west of the time zone. People's clocks still somewhat follow the sun. And as a result of this, people in the west of a time zone tend to fall asleep later than people in the east of a time zone. But because all of us have to be up at about the same time in the morning, they lose some sleep. And during that daylight savings time transition, the people who are most negatively affected are the people in the west of a time zone. Saline Vetter has shown this in a lovely study that was done in the US where she found that daylight savings time increased traffic accidents. But the size of that effect was much greater in the west of a time zone than in the east of a time zone, presumably because people were losing more sleep and that was leading them to be sleepy at the wheel, which was increasing traffic accidents. No great surprise. And then finally, on the subject of time zones, there are either states or entire countries that follow the wrong time zone. The whole of China, despite spanning more than five, four time zones, all follows Beijing time, which is nuts. And we don't know much about the consequences of that, but they're probably not good. And then Galicia in northern Spain is one and a half hours out of the correct time zone for whatever reason. So <laughs> I think there are some really simple things that we can do at the level of society to help people keep their clocks on time with the world around them to support sleep health and then to hopefully avert some of those consequences that I've just mentioned. If you think back at your bodily clocks in general, are there any key principles to distill how to make sure that you live in sync in a harmonious way with your bodily clocks? Yes, there are. And I'll try and rattle few, through a few of these. And we'll start with light exposure. I spoke earlier about how more high intensity, short wavelength, rich light in the biological morning is going to tend to speed up the clock, shifting your clock earlier. And more of that type of light in the biological evening is going to tend to slow it down, shifting it later. That can be helpful if you are trying to move the timing of your sleep. The other side of that, though, is reducing your exposure to that type of light at the opposite time of day. 
As a generic recommendation, most people should try to reduce their exposure to overhead light in the three hours before bed. In particular, overhead white light or overhead full spectrum light or light that looks slightly blue or is quite cold. And instead, the best type of light at this time of day is light that's quite low in the environment and that has an amber hue. Simplistically, you can just think of this as trying to mimic firelight. That is the kind of light that you want in your environment at that time of day. That's going to support your body's production of melatonin and subsequently help you relax and fall asleep quickly. Moving on from light, I think with respect to physical activity, I'm always encouraging people to be active. And I don't want to say just because this isn't the optimal time of day, you shouldn't exercise because I realize that exercise is something that often needs to be fitted into people's busy schedules. So if you can only exercise and do your hard training shortly after waking in the morning, just make sure you've got a slightly longer warm up. Maybe give yourself an extra five minutes of doing some moderate intensity activity before maybe that's cycling, for example, or something like that. And then by pushing up your core body temperature, you're going to support your performance and reduce injury risk as well. I also think when you wake in the morning, it's particularly important to avoid doing very heavy exercise near end range of motion when looking at the spine specifically. Because when you lie down and you're in bed asleep, you're unloading your spine. And at that time, the discs between the vertebrae of the back fill up with fluid. And so you can think of these as now being like balloons that are pumped up with water and what that means is that those balloons are more prone to bursting at that time of day when they're loaded or when they're taking the end range of motion so if the spine is strongly flexed for instance so if you're going into the gym and you're doing heavy deadlifts or good mornings or squats it's really important to be particular about the position of your spine and trying to maintain a neutral spine bracing appropriately and so on the optimal time of day for most exercise for most people is going to be around 6 p.m. Somewhere around there in terms of their performance. But if you can only exercise early or late, then don't worry too much about that. With that said, I would avoid doing very strenuous exercise in the 30 minutes after waking, particularly if you wake to an alarm. And I would certainly finish that type of exercise at least three hours before bed, because fundamentally that type of exercise is stressful. There's a strong increase in activity in the fight or flight nervous system. When you do that type of exercise, you also tend to have lots of exposure to strong overhead light. Maybe there's loud music being played too. All these different things that increase your psychophysiological arousal that could potentially negatively affect your subsequent sleep. You need to give yourself time to unwind after that type of exercise. If you're doing less strenuous exercise, then I think the timing of activity is less important. Regarding your nutrition, we haven't spoken about this today, but I think for most people using so-called time-restricted eating is something they can both stick to and is likely to benefit them. Time-restricted eating to me means only consuming calorie-containing items in a window of 12 hours or less each day and for most people an 8 to 10 hour window works well so if we take a 10 hour window that might mean starting your breakfast at 9 a.m and finishing your dinner your final intake of the day 
at 7 p.m. It's helping to set the timing of our body's clocks each day. And that's especially true if our meals are occurring at regular times. And it's aligning our food intake with when our clocks are best set for food, particularly if the final meal of the day is finished at least three hours before bed. And the first meal of the day starts probably at least an hour after waking in the morning. I think your caffeine intake, of course, matters. Generally speaking, I think restricting caffeine intake to no more than three milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body weight per day works well for most people. To put that into perspective, if you are 70 kilos, three milligrams of caffeine per kilo is 210 milligrams, which is about four instant coffees, or it's about a store-bought Americano plus an instant coffee. And then timing matters too. And there's huge variation between people and how they metabolize caffeine. But I think for most people, trying to finish caffeine intake no later than nine hours before bed is reasonable, it's doable. After that time, you can have decaf alternatives, no problem at all. With alcohol, earlier is better. Again, there's large variation between people and how quickly they metabolize alcohol, but alcohol can both disrupt your clock and also disrupt your sleep in some other ways too. It tends to exacerbate breathing issues during sleep because it's a muscle relaxant. It's a diuretic, so you wake more frequently during the night in order to go to the toilet. It also seems to selectively reduce rapid eye movement sleep, which is itself problematic. So with alcohol, I think try and give yourself at least one hour before bed for each unit consumed plus one hour. Then regarding some other behaviors, I think with respect to medication, speak to your doctor about whether there's a the best time of day at which to take medication. There clearly is for some drugs. To give some examples I haven't mentioned yet, Many arthritis symptoms tend to flare during the biological nighttime. A lot of people have their most severe symptoms either during the night or in the early morning. And a lot of people benefit from taking medications for these, in particular glucocorticoid-based medications, around bedtime. That tends to improve how they feel the next morning. In the case of statins that are used to address high cholesterol and whether that is actually important to address as a subject that's very contentious, those medications seem to produce best results when they're taken in the evening, in part because of the fact that the rate-limiting enzyme in cholesterol biosynthesis peaks quite late in the day. So I think those are probably some of the main ones, but the final thing that I'll mention is sleep and sleep regularity. Sleep regularity is really important. You're trying to give yourself a, a consistent sleep opportunity each day. And the appropriate sleep opportunity for you isn't necessarily what it is for your brother, even if your brother is the same age, or for your partner, even if your partner is the same age. And how much sleep you need varies sometimes over quite short timescales. For example, if you've been very sedentary and you're just starting a new exercise training program, you'll probably find that you're able to sleep a bit longer than you were previously. If you're fighting an infection and you get a low dose of a virus because we're coming into flu and COVID season now, Daniel, you, I think you're probably fighting something right now, then you might find that you need slightly more sleep. But if you have a very high viral load, you might find that temporarily your sleep goes out the window. And unfortunately, probably not that much that you can do about that. 
But the point that I'm trying to convey is that sleep is very dynamic and it responds to what your body needs. And your sleep schedule needs to be somewhat flexible, but for most people trying to make it more regular benefits their sleep. And it's really important for people to match their time in bed to their actual sleep capacity. And I mention that because if you're someone who wakes to an alarm in the morning and you feel like your sleep quality is quite good, then you might well need more time in bed. And there's all sorts of research showing that people with lifestyle driven insufficient sleep benefit in many ways from sleep extension where they might go to bed slightly earlier in conjunction with some changes to their evening light exposure. They set their alarm as late as possible. They might slightly reduce their caffeine intake. When they do that, they can sleep longer and their physical performance improves. Their cognition improves such that they're better able to sustain their attention at work. Their metabolic health improves, looking at things like blood sugar control. Maybe their cardiovascular health improves too. Thank you for listening to part one of our conversation. Part two will follow next week, where we'll do a deep dive on sleep and the three powerful ways to finally get good sleep help.